but we know, at any rate partially, the lives of the semi-adepts, who had enough knowledge to practice transmutation, who dimly saw the path to the divine, but remained too human to prevent themselves giving way to their passions. They took part in the work of alchemy with a selfish aim, and since anything to do with gold unlooses greed and hatred, they were carried away by their own folly, and almost all of them perished miserably. About the middle of the 16th century an English lawyer named Talbot who was travelling in Wales, stopped for the night at an inn, in a little mountain village. He was wearing a curious cap which encircled his head and face down to the chin. The cap was never removed and was invariably mentioned when descriptions of him were circulated. This strange headdress served to hide the place where his ears had been, they had just been cut off in London as a punishment for forgery. The innkeeper of the little inn where he slept was accustomed to show his customers, as a curiosity, an unintelligible old manuscript. He showed it to Talbot, who was quite well aware of the profit sometimes to be derived from old papers and inquired the origin of the manuscript. It appeared that a few years before, during the religious wars, some Protestant soldiers had rifled the grave of a Catholic bishop, who, during his lifetime, had been a very rich man. In the grave they found this manuscript and two ivory balls, one red and the other white. They broke the red ball and, finding in it nothing but a dark powder, threw it away. The manuscript and the white ball they had left with the innkeeper in exchange for a few bottles of wine. While the innkeeper was showing the manuscript his children were playing with the ball. Talbot suspected something, bought the manuscript and the ball for a guinea, and as he had a friend, a Dr. John D., who was interested in hermetic science, he went to see him and showed him his find. D. realized that the manuscript dealt with the philosopher's stone and with the methods of finding it, but that it did so in a symbolic form, the meaning of which escaped him. He opened a white ball and found inside it a powder which was none other than the precious projection powder. With its help he was able at his first experiment in the presence of the astounded Talbot to make gold. To describe Talbot as being astounded hardly conveys his condition. Most men lose their self-control under the influence of gold, for the royal metal with its dull glitter produces an intoxication which is more intense than that produced by any alcohol. It increases a man's base passions, his desire for physical gratification, avarice, vanity. Gripped by the lust for gold, Talbot made a pact with John D., whose help was indispensable to him for the operation of transmutation, and, as his reputation in England was exceedingly bad, a fact of which his cap reminded him at every turn, they began to travel. The two companions, whose link was lust for gold, went to Bohemia and Germany. John Dee was still unable to understand the Catholic bishop's manuscript, but he could use the powder. The style they kept up and the lectures of Talbot, who boasted of being an adept and of being able to make gold at will, created a great stir wherever they went. The Emperor Maximilian II sent for Talbot and, with his entire court, was present at an attempt at transmutation. He immediately appointed Talbot Marshal of Bohemia. But what he wanted from him was not a small quantity of projection powder, but the secret of its production. He had Talbot watched and then imprisoned him so that the precious secret should not be lost. But Talbot was unable to reveal a secret he did not know, and the stock of the bishop's powder was nearly exhausted. John D., 
who had been wise enough to realize his own ignorance and remain in obscurity, fled to England, where he sought and received the protection of Queen Elizabeth. The manuscript on which he had labored seems to have kept its secret until his death, for he lived the last part of his life on a small pension given him by the Queen. The arrogant Talbot killed one of his guards in an attempt to escape and died in his prison. I have told this story to show that the secret of the philosopher's stone was not given to Nicholas Flamel alone, but that it was known from immemorial times, that it filtered through the ages by various means and was received by men in modern times, for their will or woe, according to their capacity to understand and love their fellow beings. History records many men who have been able to make gold. But this was only the first stage of the secret. The second gave the means of healing physical illnesses through the same agent which produced transmutation. To reach this stage a higher intelligence and a more complete disinterestedness were necessary. The third stage was accessible only to very few. Just as the molecules of metals are transformed under great increase of temperature, so the emotional elements in human nature undergo an increased intensity of vibrations which transform them and make them spiritual. In its third stage the secret of the philosopher's stone enabled a man's soul to attain unity with the divine spirit. The laws of nature are alike for that which is above and for that which is below. Nature changes according to an ideal. Gold is the perfection of terrestrial substances, and it is to produce gold that minerals evolve. The human body is the model of the animal kingdom, and living forms orientate themselves in the direction of their ideal type. The emotional substance of the soul strives, through the filter of the senses, to transform itself into spirit and return to unity with the divine. The movement of nature is governed by a single law, which is diverse in its manifestations, but uniform in its essence. It was the discovery of this law that the alchemists sought. If there were many of them who discovered the mineral agent, fewer were able to find its application to the human body and only a very few adepts knew of the essential agent, the sublime heat of the soul, which fuses the emotions, consumes the prison of form and allows entry into the higher world. Raymond Lull made gold for Edward III, King of England. George Ripley gave a hundred thousand pounds of alchemical gold to the Knights of Rhodes when they were attacked by the Turks. Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden had an enormous number of gold pieces coined which were marked with a special mark because they were of hermetic origin. They had been made by an unknown man under the protection of the king, who was found at his death to possess a considerable quantity of gold. In 1580 the elector Augustus of Saxony, who was an alchemist, left a fortune of 17 million rix dollars. The source of the fortune of Pope John XXII, whose residence was Avignon and whose revenues were small, must be ascribed to alchemy, at his death there were in his treasury 25 million florins. This must be concluded also in the case of the 84 quintals of gold possessed in 1680 by Rudolf II of Germany. The learned chemist Van Helmorn and the Dr. Helvetius, who were both skeptics with regard to the philosopher's stone and had even published books against it, were converted as a result of an identical adventure which befell them. An unknown man visited them and gave them a small quantity of projection powder, he asked them not to perform the transmutation until after his departure and then only with apparatus prepared by themselves, in order to avoid all possibility of fraud. The grain of powder given to Van Helmorn was so minute that he smiled, 
the unknown man smiled also and took back half of it, saying that what was left was enough to make a large quantity of gold. Both Van Helmont's and Helvetius' experiments were successful, and both men became acknowledged believers in alchemy. Van Helmont was the greatest chemist of his day. If we do not hear nowadays that Madame Curie has had a mysterious visitor who gave her a little powder, the color of the wild poppy and smelling of calcined sea salt, the reason may be that the secret is lost, or, possibly, now that alchemists are no longer persecuted or burnt, it may be that they no longer need the favorable judgment of those in official power. Until the end of the 18th century, it was customary to hang alchemists dressed in a grotesque gold robe on gilded gallows. If they escaped this punishment they were usually imprisoned by barons or kings, who either compelled them to make gold or extorted their secret from them in exchange for their liberty. Often, they were left to starve in prison. Sometimes they were roasted by inches or had their limbs slowly broken. For when gold is the prize, religion and morality are effaced and human laws set at naught. This is what happened to Alexander Sethun, called the Cosmopolitan. He had had the wisdom to hide all his life and avoid the company of the powerful. He was a truly wise man. However, he married. In order to please his wife, who was young and beautiful, asterisk Louis Figuier, el alchemy et les alchemists, yielded to the invitation extended to him by the elector of Saxony, Christian II, to come to his court. As he was unwilling to disclose the secret of the philosopher's stone, which he had long possessed, he was scalded every day with molten lead, beaten with rods and torn with needles till he died. Michael Sendivogius, Bottischer, and Pakel spent part of their lives in prison, and many men suffered death for no other crime than the study of alchemy. If a great number of these seekers were impelled by ambition, if there were among them charlatans and impostors, yet many of them cherished a genuine ideal of moral development. At all events their work in the domain of physics and chemistry formed a solid basis for the few wretched fragmentary scraps of knowledge which are called modern science and are cause for great pride to a large number of ignorant men. These men regard the alchemists as dreamers and fools, though every discovery of their infallible science is to be found in the dreams and follies of the alchemists. It is no longer a paradox, but a truth attested by recognized scientists themselves, that the few fragments of truth that we modems possess are due to the pretended or genuine adepts who were hanged in the Middle Ages with a gilt dunce's cap on their heads. Moreover, not all of them saw in the philosopher's stone the mere vulgar, useless aim of making gold. A small number of them received, either through a master or through the silence of daily meditation, higher truth. These were the men who, by having observed it in themselves, understood the symbolism of the third essential rule of alchemy. Use only one vessel, only one fire, and only one instrument. They knew the characteristics of the soul agent, of the secret fire, of the serpentine power which moves upwards in spirals, of the great primitive force hidden in all matter, organic and inorganic, which the Hindus call Kundalini, which creates and destroys simultaneously. They calculated that the capacity for creation and the capacity for destruction were equal, that the possessor of the secret had power for evil as great as his power for good, and just as nobody trusts a child with a high explosive, so they kept the divine science to themselves, or, if they left a written account of the facts they had found, they always omitted the essential point, so that it could be understood only by someone who already knew.
Examples of such men were, in the 17th century, Thomas Vaughan, called Philalethias, and, in the 18th century, Lascaris. It is possible to form some idea of the lofty thought of Philalethias from his book Introitus, but Lascaris has left us nothing. Little is known of their lives. Both of them wandered about Europe teaching those whom they considered worthy of being taught. They made gold often, but only for special reasons. They did not seek glory but shunned it. They had knowledge enough to foresee persecution and avoid it. They had neither fixed abode nor family. It is not known when and where they died. It is probable that they attained the most highly developed state possible to man, that they accomplished the transmutation of their soul. While still living they were members of the spiritual world. They had regenerated their being, performed the task of man. They were twice born. They devoted themselves to helping their fellow men, this they did in the most useful way, which does not consist in healing the ills of the body or in improving men's physical state. They used a higher method, which in the first instance can be applied only to a small number, but eventually affects all. They helped the noblest minds to reach the goal which they have reached themselves. They sought such men in the towns through which they passed, and, generally, during their travels. They had no school and no regular teaching, because their teaching was on the border of the human and the divine. But they knew that a word sown at a certain time in a certain soul would bring results a thousand times greater than those which could accrue from the knowledge gained through books or ordinary science. From the bottom of our hearts, we ought to thank the modest men who held in their hands the magical formula which makes a man master of the world, a formula which they took as much trouble to hide as they had taken to discover it. For however dazzling and bright the obverse of the medallion, its reverse is dark as night. The way of good is the same as the way of evil, and when a man has crossed the threshold of knowledge, he has more intelligence but no more capacity for love. He is even tempted to have less. For with knowledge comes pride, and egoism is created by the desire to uphold the development of qualities that he considers sublime. Through egoism he returns to the evil which he has tried to escape. Nature is full of traps, and the higher he rises in the hierarchy of men, the more numerous and the better hidden are the traps. Ascetics are fortunate in so far as their asceticism is in some measure obligatory, in so far as they have not the possibility of satisfying passions which are dormant in them and which they know only from having observed them in others. But how dramatic it would be if the door of their cell should suddenly open and disclose within reach of their hand all that they desire or might have desired it. Saint Anthony Indiana his desert was surrounded by nothing but dreams. He stretched out his arms to grasp them, and if he did not succumb to temptation, it was only because the phantoms vanished when he sought to seize them. But the living, almost immediately tangible reality of gold, which gives everything, what superhuman strength would be necessary to resist it? That is what had to be weighed by the adepts who possessed the triple hermetic truth. They had to remember those of their number who had failed and fallen away so lightly. And they had to ponder how apparently illogical and sad for mankind is the law by which the tree of wisdom is guarded by a serpent infinitely more to be feared than the serpent which tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden.